All right, so tonight's topic, that Jesus is a copy of the pagan myths. What is this argument? Uh, this argument is actually that the story of Jesus, he's, he's not a real person, he never existed. And the way that we can know that is because he, his story lines out with pagan mythology. That's what this argument is about. Jesus looks like another one of the pagan gods at, that came out of the mystery religions in the first century, or that he's, his story is actually based in these um, previously existent stories about these other gods. So this is an argument that's being made. Now, this argument is very popular. This is a very popular argument. Um, no, we're not to that yet. Okay, this is a very popular argument. I've seen it all over the internet all over the internet. You can find whole websites, like there's a website called uh, The Pagan Origins of the Christ Myth, things like that. You see it there. The other, thing, the other reason I'm addressing this is because it's so prevalent in the media. There's very influential people like Bill Maher who say that the worship of Jesus is the same thing as the worship of Horus, the god Horus. He said this in 2008 on the show The View, which I know that you all watch, right? <laughs> uh, some of you are going, what is the view, right? <laughs> yeah, Barbara Walters and uh, who's, who else is on there? Boy, I've lost who all is on there. Hasselbeck's on there, Elizabeth Hasselbeck. Uh, but it's a, it's a daytime talk show. And he was promoting his movie Religious when he said this. He said, you know, faith is a lack of critical thinking. And then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, G the worship of Jesus is like the worship of Horus. So it's, it, he's a very prominent uh, political comedian and he's very influential. When he says things like this, they make an impact on our culture and our society. So I'm addressing this because one, it's a very popular argument and you probably either have heard it or will come across it at some point. The other reason is the implications of this claim. The implication is that uh, Jesus did not exist. He's not a real person. And this goes against the Christian doctrines and it goes against our scriptures. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, actually 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 15, Paul, the Apostle Paul actually writes that if Christ has not been raised, that we have no, our faith is useless. We have no faith, really. It's useless. Um, if Christ has not been raised, he goes on in verse 15 to say, uh, not only is your faith useless, but that you're giving a false testimony about God which is a very severe accusation. It's going against the Ten Commandments about not giving false testimony um, about your neighbor in the Ten Commandments, but it's just giving false testimony about God. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that even Paul's saying, hey, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, and he's establishing this resurrection as a specific event that happened in a specific time in the beginning of that chapter, uh, if it hasn't happened, then we don't have of faith. We don't have anything to believe in. And that's, it's very important, therefore, that if people say Jesus never existed, um, that he's a myth, that we address this claim because of our own belief. In uh, 2 Peter 1.16, the author there says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. And the word is the Greek word mythos. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay? That would be just a direct uh, lie. It would be an untruth. He's saying we didn't make up these stories. We did not tell you. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories. So if Jesus can be relegated as simply just a nice fable or a myth, then uh, certainly his salvific work is diminished um, because he did not. He does not offer us salvation there because he's not a real person. So maybe his story could teach us subjective ethical values. 
but not objective values or truths. Okay? Um, therein lies a reason for defending against the Jesus as a myth, or more recently, uh, in the last hundred years, Jesus as a mythic hero archetype. If you've read any Joseph Campbell or uh, Lord, I don't know I'm saying his name right, Lord Raglan, Rag, the Raglan? Yeah, some of you are shaking your head like, sure, Mary Jo, that's good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All righty. So um, because my background is public school educator, I don't like to just always bomb people. Here is how, you're, here's the argument. Sometimes I like to do methodology and say, how do we investigate this argument? How do we go about looking at it? So tonight you're going to get kind of arguments for, um, that Jesus, arguments against the fact that Jesus is a myth. And then you're going to get argument, you're going to get a methodology of how to go about investigating that claim. So the three areas we'll look at. Three actions we should take in addressing Jesus' story as a copy of earlier pagan myths. These are on your outline. Get the whole story, take the parallels head to head, and set everything in context. Okay? Very important to do that when you encounter these arguments. All right. And we talked about him already. Good. Okay, so the first action we're going to take is read the stories. <laughs> Get the whole story by reading the stories. Very revelatory, isn't it? <laughs> I know you're going, wow, thank you so much. Um, there are actually huge differences if you'll read the stories between, in the historical details, the author's intent for what he was writing, and the literary style of these um, myths versus the biblical literature. In fact, C.S. Lewis noted this, and he said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myth all my life. I know what they are like. I know not one of them is like this. So one of the best ways we can see the differences here is to actually uh, get a hold of some of the source material for yourself and to begin to read the mythic literature. I don't have my books listed. They're not down in the store because, um, because I am filling in for a gentleman. Um, but I want to show you some of the things. What am I talking about? What's a source material? Well, something that you would use in uh, a college class on mythology, like an anthology of classical myth, primary sources and translation. So you can actually get yourself to read what was written. Uh, you can find those in, just check out at university what they require as far as primary sources for their mythology classes uh, or a comparative a religious studies course that deals with this. Um, I'm mentioning this point tonight specifically because of the poor scholarship I've encountered on this argument, um, where they're not going to primary sources and they're not engaging the scholars who might actually have gone to the primary sources themselves. Uh, I've noticed this with uh, Zeitgeist the movie. Has anybody seen Zeitgeist? Yeah. Okay, so a few people. Just Zeitgeist. It's an internet movie. Now you're all going to be looking it up, you with the laptops. <laughs> it's actually a very popular internet movie, and it's based in very poor scholarship. And there, we'll get to what that actually is in the second point, but that's why I bring up that you should actually read the stories, because if you were to watch Zeitgeist the movie, it could rock your world as far as your faith. Okay, but when you actually go and see what he says is a parallel, what is actually being borrowed, uh, and you read it for yourself, you go, wow, that's not even the same thing. How could the, he can say that the Christians are borrowing this when it's two different things, like in virgin birth, we'll have two totally different concepts of what that means. Um, so definitely need to read them. Uh, with the, also with the myths, I do not see an author's intent 
that these stories are to be historically verified. But when I look at the biblical literature, I do find that there is intention for these stories to be placed in a specific time in, in history, especially with, if you look at the author Luke, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, or uh, Luke is writing in Acts. In fact, if you look at the very first chapter of Luke, chapter one, verses one through four, you'll see that Luke is specifically saying, first of all, that he wrote these things, he investigated all these things in order that Theophilus might know with certainty the things he's been taught. That's very different from uh, the mythic literature. Also in Luke 3, 1 through 2, you're going to see that he actually states what year this was going on and who was, in, who was reigning at that time and various offices and various um, positions that they held and where they held those. This, he's trying to locate this story in time. It's important for his view of Christ as being history and not as myth. This point is uh, also a part of essential qualities of the myths. It's one of the things that not being able to verify them historically, not setting them in history, is one of the essential qualities that makes it a myth. And we'll look at that in part three. Um, but check out, read the stories for yourself, and then check out the sources of whoever you're encountering. If somebody comes up to you and says, Jesus Christ, uh, worshiping Jesus Christ is like worshiping Horus, you definitely need to ask, well, where are you getting that from? Okay. What is your source for that? What, where are you basing that in? What's the source? That, like, do you have a text you're basing that in? What particular, where are you getting that? This is very important because many times what I'm encountering is people repeating things that they've heard from somebody else. Okay, but they haven't actually checked the source for themselves. So I want to make sure that we check out the sources. I think I've made that pretty clear. What's the actual evidence? All right. Action number two. So we're going to get the whole story. We're going to read those stories. We're going to make sure that we get those. Um, action number two is to take the parallels head to head. Some of the parallels that I see mentioned are things that are common to mankind, um, common to religion in mankind. Like well, they'll talk about, well, look, there's a belief in the afterlife. Okay, that's something that as mankind looks out at the world and he notices that this world has some problems and he thinks, you know what, this is not the way things are supposed to be. He's going to try to answer that problem of evil. And as he tries to answer that problem of evil, he's going to say, well, what it, it, there must be something else. There must be something greater. There must be another realm. This is what we'll get to with the myths. There must be another realm where things are ideal and it's not this, but I have an idea that that is there. So they try to answer this problem. They see the problem of their world and they say, something's not right here. Um, and there must be somewhere where it is. So they try to answer that. The belief in the afterlife comes out, out of that, as well as a belief that there must be a savior. There must be somebody who's going to come save us. There must be some kind of salvation. Um, where can that be found? And mankind has constantly tried to answer that throughout the years. These are things that are common throughout humanity, throughout time and history. So to point them out as a parallel or as borrowing, as the Christian's borrowing, it seems kind of vague. It seems too vague to be an actual borrowing. Plus, these are not really groundbreaking new insights that people are making. Comparative religions has been around for a long time. Um, the comparative studies formalized in the 1800s, you know, guys like Bruno Bauer and the history of religion schools looking at these issues, like these cross parallels between various religions. This has been around formally at least since the 1800s, but I would go back and say Justin Martyr was writing about this in the second century. 
And I would say further, you can go back and see Paul. And he was noticing the comparisons in Acts 17. He actually notes in verse 28 that the, Epi, uh, the uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers had a saying that we are God's offspring. And he says, because you believe that you are the offspring of the gods, um, he's referring to Zeus, um, that uh, why do you make then images of this God? You are his offspring, his children. Why then do you set up these false images and worship those? He's actually using the myth in order to explain a basic idea of being created by God. So using this myths, talking about comparative religions, this is not something that's groundbreakingly new. Now why I say that is if you read the Jesus Mysteries, the book, The Jesus Mysteries, you're going to see things saying, this is groundbreaking new material. This has never been considered before. And I'm going to tell you, no, it's been considered as old as the New Testament literature. Okay. Uh, by, I said vague similarities. They can be truly problematic when you make vague similarities because you can end up equating almost anything with anything else. John N. Oswalt, who wrote uh, The Bible Among the Myths, and we're going to keep coming back to this book, so it's not on your, I don't, well, yeah, I think it is on your paper, The Bible Among the Myths. He says, uh, a great quote, he says, an elephant is not a table because it has four legs. Okay, and some of the similarities that are being made are about that crazy. Um, let me give you an example. I said earlier, sometimes the term virgin birth is being thrown around, like all of these gods have virgin births. And uh, one example for you now, to wet your whistle, is that Mithras, the god Mithras, who is often compared to Christ in the media, Mithras' virgin birth was that he jumped out of a rock next to the bank of a sacred river under a fig tree. And he held a dagger in one hand and he held a torch in the other because he came forth from the underworld. So the torch was to light his way in the underworld. And the dagger was he came out to subdue all of creation. He actually had a struggle with the, uh, the bull of creation. There's always a bull in these myths that's responsible for uh, spilling out creation from him. And he has, that's his virgin birth, jumping out of a rock next to a riverbank. Um, then you compare that with Jesus, who was actually born of a virgin in his story. And by virgin, they mean female, human. Okay? So that's what I mean when I say that um, there's some of these comparisons that say like an elephant is not a table because it has four legs. When John Oswald says that, I mean, he means like when you compare virgin births like that, that's a real big problem. I would actually go so far as to say that's almost intellectual dishonesty. Okay, you should look at each individual case for what it is. Um, the proponents of these kinds of parallels where they say Jesus is borrowing, or this, the followers of Jesus were borrowing stories and creating this story up, they also must address the aspects of the parallels that don't support their position. Okay, not just cherry pick the ones that make Jesus' story kind of look like these others, they have to address the vast differences between Jesus' story and the story of the pagan gods. One of the areas that has shocked me the most is a lot of the dying and rising gods that Jesus is compared to have an element in their story of they don't just die, they are castrated. Okay? That's a huge difference between them and Jesus. Um, and the, the castration goes along with the dying and rising God being a symbol of fertility. Okay, which Jesus is not. 
He's not a symbol of uh, the fertility of the land or of mankind. He doesn't represent that. So it's interesting to see that that is ignored. Um, in fact, a lot of the sexual content in the myths is ignored in comparing them to Jesus, uh, to Jesus' story. So I want to share with you a couple of just a few of the gods that are um, in these <laughs> a few of the gods that are compared to Jesus and what the parallels actually look like. So on virgin birth, we have Adonis. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'll give you about four gods that I'm more familiar with. Adonis, the, it was born from a myrrh tree. Okay, that's his virgin birth. Osiris is the offspring of an affair between the earth god and the sky goddess. And I'm going super fast, and I've seen the smoke come off your pens. I'm going to slow down a little bit. Okay, so he's the offspring of, of an affair. Mithras is actually, I already told you, he's born out of a rock. Now, to, to divulge in all honesty, um, I believe that guys like, the guys who are doing the Zeitgeist movie, when they're saying that Mithras was a virgin born, they're actually going back to a prior existing myth from like the Zoroastrian tradition. And they're using those to relay, they're, they're combining the Roman Mithras, which was around the time of Christ, and this antecedent God who was um, way before. Um, and that God in the Zoroastrian tradition was born of a goddess, and he was born of the seed of a goddess, and Zoroaster, whose seed was kept in a lake. Okay, and she combines, she takes his seed, Mithras is born, and he becomes her lover. Um, so we also have kind of an incestuous situation there with Mithra. He's actually Mithra in that situation. Um, the scholars who are now looking at the Mithraic evidence say that they are, they are split. They do not know if the Roman god Mithras is actually, if he is actually related to these gods um, prior that were Mithra and Mitra. Okay, they're not sure that he's related to those gods because the Roman Mithras looks like a whole new invention. So when, if, I'm, if I'm saying, hey, Mithras has a virgin birth and I'm trying to relate that back to this other god, um, I, have a, I have a little bit of, I need to be divulging that to my audience that I'm combining this old, this ancient Zoroastrian tradition with the Roman version and I'm combining those and then I'm saying, hey, look at this, he was born of a goddess and he was... That's what's not being divulged with Mithras. Um, and that's why I'm saying I think there's some intellectual dishonesty going on. Because they're combining stories without telling you that. Uh, Dionysus, he's the offspring of Zeus and his daughter Persephone. Um, so we have, again, an incestuous <laughs> type situation. So those are, the vir those are some virgin births. Now, I told you I can't get to everybody, but uh, we got a few there. And then Jesus, born by a female human virgin, as fully God, fully man. Okay, the death stories. Adonis, he's torn to pieces by a wild boar. His arch rival, um, Ares, turns himself into a wild boar, and Adonis goes out hunting, and he's torn to pieces by him. Osiris. Osiris is difficult. Egyptian, Egyptian myths are difficult because they transform over time. They combine. Um, Horus changes throughout history, who he is and what he represents. So you end up with several stories like you do with Dionysus. 
Osiris's brother, Set, another god, coaxed Osiris into a coffin and he soldered it shut with lead and then he sets the coffin adrift in the Nile. Now, whether Osiris died by uh, drowning or whether he died by suffocation is uh, up to whatever part of the myth you're looking at and what year you're in. Okay, so he said he dies either by suffocation or drowning. He's later chopped up into 14 pieces. Remember how I said that a lot of the sexual content is left out when comparing Jesus to the myths. Osiris is one of those in that Plutarch in the second century reports on the the mystery of Osiris, Isis and Osiris cult. And he says that um, to this day, the worshipers of Osiris are holding a festival honoring Osiris's phallus. Now, why would they do that? Well, when he was chopped up into 14 pieces, everything was found but that one piece. So Isis made a model of it, consecrated it like to the gods, and then the worshipers, the outworking of that is they're, they're holding a festival in honor of this. Again, that phallus representing fertility, and Osiris being at one of the gods that represent the vegetation cycle, it represents fertility. Okay, so there's... Um, Interesting lack of telling people that there's a lot of uh, differences in these parallels. Okay, Mithras doesn't die. <laughs> That's a really interesting one because a lot of people will compare Mithras to uh, Jesus. In fact, the BBC did a show uh, where they actually called it Merry Mithras instead of Merry Christmas. And Mithras doesn't die, guys. He doesn't die at all. Not in the Roman version of his story that was around at the time of uh, Paul and the apostles and the earliest followers of Christ. Okay, uh, Dionysus, he's, he's got one of my favorite death stories because he was gazing at himself in a mirror when he died. <laughs> wow. Okay, so he took on many shapes to evade the attackers. He's cut to pieces by his enemies while in the form of a bull. And then uh, Jesus dies by Roman crucifixion. Okay, and his death was in the place of others. Oh, so we have Osiris there. Does not equal Jesus. <laughs> That's what you're seeing on the screen. Okay, resurrection stories. Adonis. Adonis, this is his resurrection stories. Because, you know, this, the, the argument's going to be, well, there's a lot of dying and rising gods out there. Okay, so how does Adonis rise? He, he dies to the underworld for half of every year. And then he's raised up again to the upper world for half of every year. And why is this? Because there's two goddesses that are in love with him. Okay? You have Persephone, who's the goddess of death. She's in the underworld. She's in love with him. He goes down there with her for half the year. And then he comes up for Aphrodite half the year. That's just like Jesus, right? <laughs> That's another thing in comparing, I, I'm throwing some of this at you, but in comparing these myths, Jesus has no consort. He has no lady friend that is his lover. Okay? There's a lot of lovers in these myths. The gods do a lot of things that are like humans. And Jesus has no lover. He doesn't have to be shared between two goddesses. All right, Osiris. Osiris was pieced back together and revived by the incantation and magic of several gods. And if you'll read some of the Dying and Rising God stories, you'll notice that this activity happens a lot with, when his consort, his lady friend, finds out that the God has died and she uses magic or she, gets, she appeals to gods to bring him back to life, like Persephone and, um, and uh, Aphrodite. 
So he's brought back to life, but look at where he reigns. Where is he going? He's brought back to life to the underworld. He's king of the dead in Sekhep Hetep. That's where the Egyptians want to go, the land of the dead. And they want to go be there with Osiris, who is reigning in the land of the dead. So that's not the similar to Jesus's physical resurrection to life. Um, where, you know, a new life on this, this earth. I should say the new heavens and new earth. All right, so Mithras is fun because he doesn't die. He's not raised. That's it. <laughs> That's all there is. Jesus can't have a resurrection. He doesn't die. His story is actually that he ascends to the heavens. After he kills that bull, he slays that bull, and all of creation spills out from the bull. Um, he ascends to the heaven to sit at the um, table with the sun. Okay, so he, he's a little different. He has no resurrection. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Mithras is being compared to Jesus in popular arguments. He has no resurrection. Not in his story. That, that's a, a big difference. Okay, Dionysus has so many stories because he's a very old god that uh, I guess we get to choose. Um, his mom, I put his mom pieced him together. Okay, his mother pieces him back together after he dies. Uh, there again, we see that the image of the lady consort um, just sharing with him um, or trying to revive him, excuse me, bring him back to life. Uh, we also find that he gets ascended to heaven after his death, or Zeus raised him up. That might make for some fun argumentation there. Zeus swallowed his heart, and then uh, birth, he gave, um, birthed him out. Uh, his heart was made into a potion given to Semele, and she had gave birth to him. I really just don't know. There's so many different versions of the Dionysus uh, resurrection story. So it would be, depend on which one you're using. Okay. And then Jesus' story is that he predicted his death and resurrection, that he raised himself from the dead to a redeemed physical body as the first of the resurrection of all people. He's the example, the model for all people. That's not what you see in the myths. We don't have any, we're not going to rise like uh, the gods did, and, and we don't have the same purpose for that. Jesus himself was ra he raised from the dead as the firstborn of the resurrection. That's the story. Uh, and then he's, they tried to plant him in time and history by saying, uh, the Apostle Paul, that he was seen by the 12 disciples, seen by over 500 at one time, seen by James, Peter, and Paul. Okay. A different story. Okay. So um, I'm going to go back to the beginning. This is where we're going to go on to the third point. All right, so... Make sure that you take the parallels head to head. I only did a very few of them. There's a lot more to look at. Uh, there's, I think Jesus as a mythic hero archetype has 22 points that you can look at and see if those are parallels. And you will find similarities in the stories. I'm not going to say you won't see those because that wouldn't be honest. I mean, you'll see some similarities. Okay, but now I want to get on to the third point, which I think will help clarify what the value of the similarities are versus um, the context here. Action number three is to set everything in context. So after you read the stories and you look at some of these parallels, you also need to set the stories in their proper context. Okay? Consider the historical context of each story. What did the stories mean to the people hearing them? Okay. Uh, and how did this aspect affect their lives? How do we account for the fact that the myths arose? 
What gave cause to the myths being invented or being followed or practiced? What was the purpose behind this? Well, I think you can find that in the essential characteristics of the myths, the, the common characteristics to each myth. This is a, a task that we should be doing with the myths. We do this uh, with all of the other belief systems in the world. We actually look at different religions, religions and try to show what their essential characteristics are. And that helps us to delineate Eastern pantheistic monism from Islamic monotheism, from Christianity. Well, we also need to do this with this argument. What is mythology? What's a mythic literature versus biblical literature? I think there are some essential differences here that are not being considered. And we need to look at what those essential characteristics are that make them a mythic text versus a biblical text. In uh, the Bible among the myths, John Oswald has reintroduced an old argument against the biblical literature as mythology. He doesn't think it's mythology. And this is on the basis of there are diametrically opposed worldviews in the myths compared to the biblical literature. And I'm going to have to go a little bit slower because you don't have this on your paper, do you? Okay, there's diametrically opposed worldviews between the two kinds of literature. And we're going to try to briefly look at that tonight, what those two different worldviews are, and then try to leave time for questions. <laughs> all right. So first of all, um, one is a worldview of continuity. The worldview of continuity is what we find in the myths. So let's look at what the worldview of continuity entails. Continuity is a philosophical principle that asserts that things are continuous with each other. All that exists is a part of one another. There are no fundamental distinctions between the divine nature and humanity. They are one in essence with one another. One of the, the comparison you can make to what is that like today would be any pantheistic view. Okay, New Age spirituality believes in that there's a one essence that's behind everything. Not quite the same, but just to give you an idea that you might be able to relate to is the force in Star Wars. There's an essence that's back there that's behind everything that you can manipulate and control for good or for bad. Okay, so one essence that's behind everything. How this works out in the myths is that there are the gods can be human or they can be natural forces Nature is a part of divinity. It can be divine. That divinity can have human-like characteristics. Humanity can be one with divinity. Humanity is divine and is one with nature. In this view, there's only a distinction between um, the roles of each. There is no boundaries between them. If I were to draw you a diagram of what this view looks like, I would draw a circle and I would put three sections, divine, human, nature, and I'd put dotted lines in there to separate them out because they all intermix with each other. They're all part of the one essence. Okay? Out of this understanding of the nature of reality came some far-reaching implications for the religions of the ancient Near East. What are those implications? Things that look or sound the same are the same. They share an essence this means that if an idol, if I make an idol out of a piece of wood that's nature, and it's like Baal, it actually is Baal. 
Okay? If I make this idol, it is Baal. If Baal is like the storm because he is potent, he's life-giving, he can be destructive, then he is the storm. Um, what is, then what's done to the idol is done to Baal. He's, he's one in essence with them. He's one uh, part of that one essence that's behind everything that all things are part of. Um, and what is done to Baal is done to the storm. They're all continuous with one another. There's no barriers erected between these realms. So it's possible for humans to exert a measure of control over these other realms. How are they doing this? They are doing it um, through magic. That's one of the ways that they do this, and through ritual enactments to try to manipulate that which is divine. Uh, humans can participate in the nature and the divine. One of the important things, I think, to mention is that continuity means there's no difference between the symbol and reality. The symbol is the reality. This leads to actualization of timeless reality. That's a, a common feature of the myths is that they relate timeless stories in an effort to apply the outcomes of these stories to the events of time. The myths relate timeless stories in an effort to apply the outcomes of those stories to the events of time. Okay, you don't have really, what, what normally is said about the people of the ancients is that they were, they were kind of ignorant, silly people. Okay? What I see is a different view of the nature of reality that's actually still present in our society, which is the pantheistic view. Okay? These people are looking out at their world and they're seeing that the world is problematic. It's unordered, it's chaotic. But they, they've reasoned that there's a realm of the divine where things are ideal, where the gods win, where fertility wins over sterility, um, where the um, forces of life constantly conquer death, where chaos is constantly defeated. And you see this in the great stories of the gods. Okay? They notice this, so they say, how does one relate to the actual, this actual world to the idea of the divine realm? Well, the Epicurean philosopher Lucretius, who wrote between 94 and 55 BC, says this. He says, men perceived that the heavenly systems and the different seasons of the year revolved in fixed order, and they could not fathom the causes behind this, though they, they escaped their dilemma by attributing everything to the gods. And these people, because they believe that they're one in, the essence, with, in essence with all of the things that are, they, and they believe that when you, something is like Baal, that it is, they tell these stories of the ideal realm, the divine realm, in order to make a connection with that realm. And if the stories are acted out, that connection or relationship with the divine is much stronger. This is all based in this reasoning of continuity. Since the retelling of stories is like the supposed reality, it therefore becomes the reality in the human realm. We see this in the rituals of, that are acted out, like of Dionysus. 
the music and dancing that leads to ecstasy, that leads to a sense of union with the divine. It's interesting um, that <laughs> Dionysus, these di uh, followers of Dionysus, their rituals have been compared to the dancing of the Mevlevi dervishes. They are a sect of Islam in the 13th century. The belief behind the dancing ritual for these dervishes, uh, their leader Rumi stated that he who knows the power of the dance dwells in God. They're doing these dances to connect to the one that is behind everything, that essence. And because they believe that, Orthodox Islam has rejected them because they rejected the view of reality, which is that God is transcendent and he's not one. He's not continuous with creation. So we see this in the mythologies and in the outworks, the rituals and dances. Okay, so for the mythic hero argument. We see that the stories of human heroes are told in these myths, but in the view of continuity, these stories are not presented as particular individuals. They're symbols. They're symbols. Um, Oswald says another feature of the myth that it is that, another common feature of myth, is that it's disinterested in what we know as history. They, these heroes have been lifted out of time and space to be representative of a race or aspirations of the race. They are only real insofar as they are not particular people or events. In the mythic worldview of continuity, the individual and particulars about an event are precisely what separates it out from reality. What's real about a person or thing is that aspect that partakes of the limitless and the unchanging, the one essence that connects all things. And if you've ever seen Star Wars, <laughs> You kind of understand this, and when Luke is fighting, he's in a the old Star Wars, the original one. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm trying to give you an example of what this is like. When Luke is fighting, um, and he's, you and I would be like, I'm in the fighter jet, I see my target, I'm going to try to hit it, and practice will make it better. That's an individual, that's a particular instance. If I do this, it'll do that. Luke is told to let go, to get beyond that thought. Okay? Because what's real is behind all of that, not what he's currently doing. That's, that's going to be really important for these myths. They want to get connected to that essence that is one with everything. Um, an example from these myths is that when you have dying and rising gods, and they represent the fertility of the land, and you're one of these ancients and you're trying to reason how do I bring order into my life? I see all this chaos. I want what the divine has. I want to bring that into this life. And your view is that if, if it's like this symbol, it is. If the symbol, I'm so sorry. If, uh, if it's like Baal, it is Baal. Then you can do these stories. You can enact these stories in order to manipulate the gods into doing what you want them to do. And if, you're, if what you need them to do is to provide rain on your land, then you provide a ritual that enacts that in order for them to be manipulated and provide that rain. You don't want to leave it to chance. You want to do something. Um, now, the Jesus story doesn't fit here. The Jesus story is specifically placed in time and space by the authors. His story is only significant in the fact that he's a particular individual who did only that which he could do. And that's a non-repeatable event 
that broke into human history. His story is not told in hopes to manipulate the divine realm to bring rain upon the land or to bring fertility to himself or to the people. And it's not told in order to secure order from chaos for mankind in this life. He does not represent the hero who has an ongoing struggle with destructive forces in this realm or in the one beyond. He does not represent the battle between human fertility and sterility. He does not represent the battle of the fertility for the land. And he does not represent every man. These great heroes were representative of the aspirations of a people or race. Jesus does not represent every man. He is God. He's not a demigod, not a sexually conceived child of the gods. So that was continuity. Where are we at? Seven minutes, yeah. I just do a big world view in a small amount of time. That's great. Uh, so now I've got to contrast that with transcendence. Transcendence is the primary biblical thought. In the biblical literature, you do not see continuity. You see transcendence. What is the view of transcendence? That is that God is radically other than his creation. God is radically other than his creation. He is separate from the creation. That may help you with the continuity view, okay? In continuity, God's not separate. He's one with creation. In transcendence, God is completely separate from the creation. Uh, he's not reflective of the divine realm. Um, he's not a, this realm is not a reflection of the divine realm. It has its own existence as God's creation. God's present in the world, but he's not the same as the world. Nor does he share an essence with uh, nature and humans, like in the continuity view. God is all there is beyond creation. Nothing else transcends him. The Bible maintains this thought throughout the entire collection of letters. There is nowhere in the text where God is said to be many. There is nowhere in the text where God is identified with this world, okay, that he's one with it. Out of this thought comes an understanding of the nature of reality that we see in the Old Testament text, but not in the ancient literature of the myths. You also don't see of the other, any other ancient Near Eastern um, religion, as well as the Eastern religions. This is a completely different thought on the nature of reality. And interestingly, the only surviving religions today that hold this view are the monotheistic religions of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, which all come out of this Old Testament text okay, on this view of transcendence of God. Transcendence means that there are real barriers between creation um, and God, between the divine nature and humanity. If we were to draw our circle again, to include everything that is, we would have God nature, humanity, and they would have real, they would have solid lines, okay? They are different. They're real barriers. Humans can't participate in nature through the one essence that unites them with nature nor with the gods. Things that look and sound the same are not necessarily the same, okay? They're not necessarily the same. In the instance of an idol, it's not the same thing as God because God is not one with the natural, so he's not in the idol, He's not there. He's not in the idol. And he cannot be manipulated through magic or reenactments of rituals of any kind. He is beyond 
this realm and there are real barriers between them. This is, you can find this in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments in verses four through five. You're not to make any idols nor bow down to any images made of, this, of the stuff of this realm. Okay, because God, God cannot be manipulated. Um, he is not an idol and he's not present in those things. All right, so what this leads to, we have the actualization of timeless reality in the myths. So what do we have in the biblical literature? The importance of human historical activity. A common characteristic of biblical thought is that monotheism. There's one supreme God, yet there's still struggle and strife in this domain. So they're noticing the same thing that the people of the ancient Near East knows. There's still problems in this domain. How do we explain this? Instead of saying there are many different gods that are fighting against each other and have these grand struggles in the divine realm, what you find in the biblical text is the saga of man's defiance against God. You find that history was conceived as the struggle between the will of God and the will of man. What this means for the transcendence worldview is that to understand the human experience correctly, we're gonna, we must look at the history of human behavior in relation to God, not at the relations of gods to each other. Therefore, it becomes very important to know why a person made the decisions they did and what were the effects of those decisions. This is how a person learns to know the will of God what was done and what happened as a result of that. And it becomes very important, therefore, to record the history of those actions. This is how a person knows God through the transcendence view. Um, it's not by uniting with God in essence through ritualistic dramas that represent human struggle in the realm of the divine in hopes that you can manipulate reality in order to ensure some kind of order. So, um, for the, John Oswald says, for the first time, it becomes highly important to record unique activities of human individuals in time and space, especially when they made particular decisions. So we can see the consequences or, of those actions, whether it be good or bad. This highly contrasts the continuity view in which events are only important in that they are not particular events that they are timeless representations that can be reenacted to manipulate uh, this one essence, to participate in that. The Jesus story fits in the view of transcendence. It fits here. It doesn't fit in the mythological view. It fits here. Jesus' story is specifically, I said this before, I'm gonna reiterate it, is specifically placed in time and space by the authors his story is only significant in that he's a particular individual who did that which only he could do, a non-repeatable event. And his story is not told in hopes to manipulate the divine realm to secure order from chaos for mankind in this life. In fact, Jesus has no struggle with chaos at all. A common theme in the myths is the struggle between order and chaos. There is nothing in the Jesus story like this. It's, a, it's part of a completely different view of the nature of reality. <coughs> Jesus, in fact, even has control over his own death, as reported in the literature. 
He has control over his own death. John 10, 17 through 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Nothing like the mythologies. Okay? Nothing like that. They're all killed by their arch enemies or somebody putting them down to death. Um, they're not in control of it. They're fighting against that chaos, that death. Jesus is also not representative, again, of every man. He is God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And Jesus' particular activity he can do that no one else can offer is the salvation of mankind. Amen. Okay. The salvation of mankind. So his event, his salvific work is important for human history because we need to know what that was in order to rightly respond to it uh, as individuals. This is nothing like myth. Guys, this is nothing like myth. We need to look at all of these. Um, <laughs> read the myths. Read them. Find that worldview in there. Read the biblical literature. See the worldview that's consistent throughout. Um, let, me, let me leave you with 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. This sounds like me. <laughs> it's like he's talking about, I'm, I'm writing this. Um, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. This, now listen to this. This fits with the transcendence view with the human historical perspective. For this reason, uh, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, okay? We're retelling the story of what actually happened so others can have this eternal life as well, so others can respond. To the king of ages, the immortal, invisible, the only God, be the honor and glory forever and ever, amen. In the words of Paul. And I think I went the whole time, guys, um, but uh, it was a lot to get through. It was a lot to do. Uh, I'm going to stay here. Do we, what, what time is it? It's past time. Um, <laughs> I apologize for that. I will stick around. And I, if you have some questions on continuity, transcendence, why the myths are different from them, uh, the biblical literature, I'd love to talk to you about that. I have a booth set up for you out in the Okay. I'm going to go out to my booth. Confident Christianity will be there. And uh, hey, I appreciate your, uh, your attentiveness, and uh, I'm really glad I got to be here with you today. And, and guys, the Bible's not myth, so be sure that you're telling people that. <laughs> All right. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.